Lucius did his best to appear at ease. Inside, he was frantic. He was deeply distressed as he walked to see the prisoner. He had come here so many times before. He had always been so happy to make these visits. Lucius had worked very hard in his trade as a sandal maker. It had been difficult as a young man to earn enough to provide for his new wife, Aquilia, and their baby when he was first married. He was good at what he did. His father had been a sandal maker, and Lucius had spent his entire childhood learning how to make sandals that would last. But there were many sandal makers in Rome, and he struggled for several years to support his young family. Then he stumbled on the idea that changed all that. Lucius bought the best materials he could buy and spent a long time making the nicest, most elaborate sandal he could imagine. Then he offered it for sale at what he thought was an outrageously high price. It sold far more quickly than he thought it would, and word got out about his superior sandals. Now he was the sandal maker that all the senators and patricians came to for their sandals. He was able to buy his family of six a good house and provided for them well. Aquilia was so proud of him, and it made him feel good to know that he had made her proud. She was a good woman, always worked hard, kept a nice house, was a great mother to their children. Lucius knew he was lucky to have found such a good woman. And she never asked anything of him, that is, until one day several years ago. He came home from work one day, and Aquilia told him she wanted to go see a man that she had heard talking in the market. Lucius felt he was far too busy to waste his time with the street philosophers and charlatans found in the market. But Aquilia insisted, and she never asked anything of him, so he decided to indulge her this once. He went to the market with her the next day, and he was amazed. The man, Apollos, was discussing ideas he had never heard talked about out loud before, caring for each other, the power of forgiving, and living peaceably with one another. He claimed these ideas had come from a man named Jesus, from the far-off province of Judea. It turned out Lucius couldn't get enough of what Apollos had to say. He went back again and again and began engaging with him. Apollos's ideas of living in a community of people who cared about one another and shared the same beliefs had an irresistible draw for Lucius. Soon he was discussing, then organizing, such a community, a community that Apollos called a church. As they built up this new church, Lucius found himself an elder or leader of the church. He was amazed at how quickly membership in their new church mushroomed. Just as it had with Lucius, this idea of a caring, supportive community was an idea that truly resonated with the plebeians living in this each-man-for-himself Rome that could be so transactional and cold. A few years went by. Apollos left to do work elsewhere, and Lucius and his fellow elders had grown their church as big as they could handle. Lucius even helped start a handful of other churches and was happy to see them doing well. He and Aquilia felt so comfortable in their new church family. They had helped several plebeians who had been struggling to get back on their feet. These days they gave more to the church than they took from it, but it always felt so great to help hardworking people who were so grateful for some help getting restarted in life. They so enjoyed the feeling of love and acceptance that always filled their church. Then one day they heard the biggest news their church had ever heard. The man named Paul was coming to Rome. Lucius and his fellow elders walked the 43 miles to the Forum of Appius Way Station on the Via Appia and waited for him. 
Paul arrived and they greeted him with great thankfulness, so excited that this great apostle that they had heard so much about had come to visit them. There was some legal dispute that had originated back in Judea, and the emperor Nero had confined him to house arrest, but the churches of Rome were more than happy to take care of all his needs. He stayed for a couple years, then even bigger news came. The apostle Peter had arrived in Rome. This was the chief of the apostles, a man who had walked and lived with Jesus himself. He was there at the beginning of Jesus' mission, and he was there at the end. The church in Rome immediately named him head of the church. Under Peter, the church grew like crazy. Every week, new churches were beginning here or there. It was mostly among the plebs, so at first it didn't attract much notice among the patricians. But more recently, patricians began joining the movement as well. Now everyone in Rome knew about this Christian movement. The Christians were watched with some skepticism by some, but never made trouble, so people always left them alone. Then came the great fire. Rome had never seen a fire like it. It burned the city for nine days. After it was burned out, ten of Rome's fourteen districts had burned to the ground. After the fire, it was openly rumored that Emperor Nero sat and played his lyre during the fire. There was so much opposition to the emperor that he began blaming Christians for the fire to take the blame away from him. He rounded up the leaders. Peter was crucified. He asked them to crucify him upside down because he said he did not deserve to be martyred the same way his Lord Jesus was. Some church leaders were tied to posts along the street and coated with pitch to be lit on fire at nightfall to serve as human lamps. The prisoner Lucius was going to see was Paul. He wanted to warn him of the fate that awaited him, and then he would try to escape the now-cursed city of Rome. He prayed that no one would recognize him as a Christian before he was able to get out of the city. Nero was such a train wreck of an emperor, it's a wonder that the Roman Empire was able to survive at all with such poor leadership. Nero had a younger stepbrother murdered, as well as his mother. He married his stepsister and had her murdered, then married a second time and killed that wife as well. He spent vast sums on banquets and orgies. He fancied himself a great artist and treated his participants at his drunken banquets to his singing and poetry. The consensus seems to be that Nero was a drunken, paranoid megalomaniac. By the end of his disastrous reign, Roman provinces were beginning to revolt. How did the Roman Empire survive with such bad leadership? I think part of the answer is the Stoic philosopher Seneca, who had been Nero's boyhood tutor, acted as advisor and, with the help of a couple other competent statesmen, basically ruled the empire very competently for Nero's first five years. And then after some time, crucially, the Senate condemned Nero as an enemy of the state, which led to his suicide in the 13th year of his reign. I think by far the most important reason the Roman state survived Nero's reign, however, was that it had been put on an incredibly sound footing by the emperor Augustus who followed Julius Caesar. Augustus was born Gaius Octavius and was ultimately adopted by his great-uncle Julius Caesar when Caesar recognized his gifts. Gifts Augustus had but being a competent general wasn't one of them. He was somewhat sickly and didn't seem to have the constitution to be a general. Fortunately for the Roman people, though, he 
had competent generals working for him who defeated Mark Antony at the Battle of Actium in the civil war that followed the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC. After a few years of military campaigning, Augustus consolidated his power and sat down to govern the empire. Augustus Caesar was one of the few great administrative geniuses to find his way to the head of an empire. This was an area where he was truly gifted. He appointed competent staff to help him and completely reorganized the administrative structure of Rome and the empire. Then he reorganized Rome's central treasury, as well as the treasuries and financial systems of the provinces. Importantly, he standardized and significantly expanded the empire's coinage, opening several mints throughout the empire that standardized coinage used throughout the realm. There's no question that Augustus promoted the interests of the patrician and equestrian classes, but he also knew the importance of providing for the plebs so that there wasn't civic unrest. He provided for not only a fire brigade, but also for one of the world's first, if not the first, police force. This must have eased the stress on the plebs significantly. Remember that almost all commoners in the world had lived up until this time with no police to protect them and would have had to learn to protect their families against those who would prey on the most vulnerable in their societies. Famously, Augustus also began the tradition of what the Roman satirist Juvenal would later call bread and circuses. He instituted the system of subsidized grain to the Roman plebs, a system made possible by Roman control of Egyptian farmland in the rich Nile Delta, and he used Rome's great wealth to stage games. Under Augustus, Roman plebs were provided about 66 days a year in which they could enjoy gladiatorial and other games, with enough food to prevent hunger, games to break up the monotony of their day-to-day grind, and the stability of having a police force and a fire brigade. The plight of the Roman plebs was greatly eased under Augustus. Although there was some minimal expansion of the empire here and there during the period, Augustus actually pulled back the empire's borders somewhat, to a point where he could be confident that it was adequately administered. By the end of his reign, Augustus had provided Rome with domestic stability, stable borders, thriving trade and commerce throughout the empire thanks to his financial and monetary reforms, and, most importantly, the Pax Romana, what is known as the Peace of Rome. This was a period of roughly 200 years in which the empire lived at peace without significant war throughout the empire. This was incredibly unusual in the ancient world. Augustus had established good fiscal and administrative systems, civic harmony, and commerce. So it would look like Augustus provided the perfect medium for a new social movement, or religion, a very large empire with active commerce and trade between the provinces, and a long period of peace for such a movement to take hold. One might even argue that it was the fullness of time. What could go wrong? Oh yeah, they were persecuted. The persecutions of the early church under Nero were truly severe and caused significant problems for them. But first, a quick aside. It wasn't only the Christians who were persecuted under Nero. In Judea, some extremist groups launched local rebellions against Roman rule. This resulted in the Roman governor responding with brutal and overwhelming force, leading to more opposition to Rome and more severe crackdowns, etc. Eventually, The governor sacked the temple and used the wealth from that to construct a statue of Nero and then required the Jewish people to worship it. This was a move sure to get a rise out of the extremely religious Jews, and it did.
The Jews rose up against Rome in a full-on rebellion and forced the Romans out of Jerusalem. And here was a move sure to get a rise out of the Roman, which it did. Nero ordered his general Vespasian and his son Titus to raise an army and punish the Jews. Vespasian conquered all of Judea except Jerusalem, but then had to return to Rome when Nero committed suicide. Titus remained and besieged Jerusalem. After a four-month siege, the Romans entered and sacked the city. Even worse for the religious Jews, they not only entered and sacked the temple, the home of God on earth to the Jews, but they burned it to the ground. According to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, a million Jews were killed. These kinds of estimates from ancient sources need to be taken with a certain skepticism, but there were certainly a massive number of Jews killed by Vespasian and Titus. Also, according to Josephus, 70,000 Jewish slaves were taken back to Rome to build the famous Colosseum. Whatever Jews remained in Judea were forced out and resettled wherever they could throughout the empire. This was the beginning of the Jewish diaspora. Since then, the Jewish diaspora has been a constant throughout the Western world. The diaspora caused a major change in Jewish religious practice. Before the diaspora, the Second Temple in Jerusalem had been the center of Jewish religious life, and the high priest was in charge of the temple and at the pinnacle of Jewish religion. After this, there was no temple. Religious life centered thereafter around the synagogue, making the rabbi the center of religious life. As such, rabbinic Judaism would be the form of Judaism followed by the faithful throughout the diaspora. Okay, now back to the persecutions of the early church. The early Christians were never accepted into normal Roman life. It was the old in-group-out-group dichotomy that plays a central role in virtually every historical episode you'll ever study the one that goes back to Adam and Eve's standoff with their neighboring tribe of Homo sapiens because neither one could trust the other, and the same in-group-out-group dynamics we see when one chimpanzee troop meets another in the wild. The Romans weren't overly religious people as ancient people went. They were primarily transactional people and were focused on work and business and practical things. But at the same time, they were very superstitious and the Roman gods played a big part in their lives. Christians were not like Greeks or other provincials. The Greeks could and did equate their god Zeus to the Roman god Jupiter and their gods Poseidon, Aphrodite, Hades, and Dionysius with the Roman gods Neptune, Venus, Pluto, and Bacchus, respectively. They all had their own gods and accepted that people from other cultures had theirs. The Christians only had one god, who came in three manifestations, which was weird, and they didn't believe that the Roman gods were real. This made them true outsiders, and so they were held in suspicion. When outsiders hold secret ceremonies with secret rites, rumors inevitably grow up. So they did with the Christians, such as rumors that they held secret cannibalistic rites. It's always been speculated that these rumors came up because of the Eucharist, where Christians spoke of eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ. Fortunately for the Christians, though, after Nero died, Future emperors didn't persecute the Christians with anything like the alacrity that Nero did. Nero had a purpose for persecuting Christians. He was blamed for the great fire of Rome and needed a scapegoat. He therefore blamed Christians, and his persecutions gave the populace an alternative boogeyman to blame. In reality, the early Christian church didn't pose much of a threat to Rome, so most persecution was pretty minimal. 
It often depended on how active a particular governor wanted to be. One of the first independent sources we have about the Christian sect is from Pliny the Younger, a governor of Northwest Asia Minor. He tortured several Christian women to find out what happened in their secret meetings, and was surprised to find out that there were no bizarre rituals. He wrote a letter in 1280 to Emperor Trajan. In it, he stated that he would give Christians multiple chances to affirm their innocence. Presumably, this means to declare that they were not Christian. If they refused three times, they were executed. So there were definitely ongoing persecutions, which kept the movement underground to some degree. If they continued to be persecuted, why did the Christian movement continue to spread so rapidly throughout the Roman Empire? There seemed to be something fundamentally different about the early Christian church. There is very little written about what life was like among early Christian groups. From what there is, I suspect that the reason for the spread of Christianity was something akin to what Lucius explained to us in the opening. Of course, Lucius is purely fictional. In the book of Acts in the New Testament, the author, probably Luke, describes a communal group where all shared in common and cared for each other. All of the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and how much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. Acts 4, 32-34 I doubt that every Christian community in the early church was communal but it appears that there was a great emphasis on caring for one another. They did things like calling members of their church brother and sister, providing for widows without families, offering assistance to families who had lost their homes or incomes, etc. In a very impersonal Roman Empire, this would have been very appealing to those at the lower end of the social pyramid. Also, there was a fair number of aristocratic women who joined the church in the first couple of hundred years of its existence probably in large part because the church considered men and women as equals, which is something these women would never have experienced in Roman life. On the other hand, there were very few aristocratic men in the early church. The Christian church spread very rapidly in Rome and in the empire at large. We obviously don't have any census numbers on early Christians, but here's what we do know. In 110 A.D., Pliny wrote in his province of Asia Minor, the Christians were common in the towns and even in the countryside. He said there were so many of them that the meat from the various routine sacrifices couldn't be sold in the market. This was because Christians wouldn't eat sacrificed meat. Then, in 251 AD, we have a church record showing that there was a bishop of Rome, a position that was later to become the papacy. Below him, there were 46 priests, seven deacons, which were powerful positions at the time, seven subdeacons, and numerous inferior church personnel. I don't know how many church members each priest oversaw, but this would certainly indicate a population of perhaps several thousand in Rome, only a couple hundred years after the establishment of the church. So the Christian religion continued to spread quickly and quietly, so as not to attract too much attention to itself and become the target of persecution throughout the Roman Empire. Remember, This was still within the Pax Romana, where an evangelist could walk from Egypt to France on paved roads, using one passport and one currency the entire trip. In reality, most would take the far faster method of booking passage on one of the thousands of merchant ships that traveled throughout the empire, and for which the Mediterranean Sea provided a very convenient highway. 
Initially, the growth of the church took place primarily within the Hellenistic world, where evangelists could use one language, at least among educated people. All of this made for the rapid spread of this new religion. Then, in the 4th century, something would happen that would move the Western world in a new direction, a direction that has lasted until today. From the 1st century to the beginning of the 3rd century AD, the empire went through a succession of good and bad emperors. Then came what is known as the crisis of the 3rd century. This was a period of consistently inept emperors. There were more than 25 in a 50-year period. Have I mentioned that good generals don't necessarily make good administrators? Besides Augustus, Rome's emperors virtually always came from either the military or inheriting the role from their father. These are both poor ways of choosing a competent monarch, and Rome paid the price in the 3rd century. This period of unqualified emperors coincided with a time of numerous barbarian invasions and migrations into Roman territory, civil wars, and peasant rebellions. All of this upheaval, combined with incompetent and inconsistent emperors, led to a true crisis. By the end of the crisis of the 3rd century, the empire was in shambles and probably would have crumbled if a competent emperor wasn't found. Fortunately for Rome, Aurelian was proclaimed emperor in 275. He restored two provinces that had broken away from Rome and instituted reforms that helped restore the empire. Then, in 284, Diocletian was proclaimed emperor, and he ruled very competently for 20 years. During the crisis of the 3rd century, there had been many barbarian incursions into Roman territory in both the west and the east. Diocletian decided that the empire was too large to be ruled by one man. The emperor was the head of the army. So if he were to take his army far to the eastern empire to fight the Parthians, and at the same time would have to fight a rebellion in Gaul in the west, he would be stretched too thin. Therefore, he divided the empire into two. He assumed running the eastern empire and named a Caesar to run the western empire. When Diocletian had all that organized and the empire was running well, both he and the western emperor retired in 305 and appointed new emperors. This made him one of the few Roman emperors to die, retired, peacefully in his own bed. I should mention one more important part of Diocletian's reign. I said that there continued to be low-level Christian persecutions throughout the early centuries of the empire. Diocletian ramped these up and severely persecuted the Christians throughout the empire. He would be, as it turned out, the last emperor to persecute the Christians. Unfortunately, in 305, the transition to new emperors didn't go as smoothly as Diocletian and his co-emperor would have wished. The two emperors, Maxentius and Constantine, found themselves facing off in yet another Roman civil war. The by then battle-tested Constantine marched on Rome, where he faced Maxentius, who was safely nestled within Rome's walls with a significant larger army than Constantine. All Maxentius had to do was to stay safely inside the walls, and Constantine would probably not have been able to defeat him. Then Constantine, at that point a pagan, saw a vision in the sky. Contemporary accounts differ slightly, but essentially he saw a Cairo in the sky with the instruction, In this sign, conquer. The Cairo was a common symbol for Christ at the time. Constantine probably had the sign painted as the symbol on his soldiers' shields. Inexplicably, Maxentius marched his stronger force out of Rome across the Milvian Bridge that crossed the Tiber just outside of Rome and took up a position across the bridge. It's unknown why he did this. He had alienated the Roman elite with too many taxes. Perhaps he felt he couldn't remain in the city without internal support. 
Who knows? At any rate, this was the worst thing he could have done. With the river Tiber to his back, his troops were unable to maneuver during the battle. When Constantine's troops began to push them back, they had nowhere to go, and it became a rout. Constantine defeated Maxentius in four hours, an unheard of time for a battle that size back then. From the earliest republic, the tradition had been for victorious generals to make sacrifices in the temple of Jupiter in Rome. Constantine refused to do this. Instead, he ended the persecution of Christians. He thereafter ruled Rome as the first Christian emperor. Not only did he use the Cairo as his battle standard in future battles, but he had it struck on Roman coins. He remained tolerant of other faiths throughout his reign, but without doubt, he promoted the Christian religion. Different forms of Christian beliefs began to spread by this time. One of them was known as Arianism, and it caused great conflict within the early church. Constantine convened a council of bishops at Nicaea about ten years after his victory at the Milvian Bridge. Importantly, he remained out of the discussions and allowed the bishops to work out a solution. The statement they came up with, the Nicene Creed, is still recited by Catholics and several other denominations of Christians every Sunday. There are very few battles in the history of the world where we can say it's hard to imagine what life would have been like today if the battle had gone the other way. The Battle of the Milvian Bridge is one of those. Christianity was a very strong underground movement at the time of the battle, but it was definitely a minority movement. Although it's certainly very possible it would one day have become the dominant religion of the Western world, even if the battle had gone the other way, this is far from certain. No one will ever know, but even if it had, it may have been very different. The church was protected under Constantine and supported with state resources. Under his support, it became the very imperious, top-down organization ruled by a single pope that it would become and remain largely unchanged for 1,500 years in Western Europe. Would the church have retained more of a local, quasi-communal nature in a holdover from its early days if it had not had official state sanction? Perhaps. There's no way to tell. It certainly lost all remnants of this under the Catholic Church. Stay tuned to see the role that the behemoth Catholic Church will play in Europe up until the Enlightenment. How do you cover almost 500 years of some of the Western world's most intriguing history in one podcast? I don't know. That's not my job. I'm trying to find the major turning points in history that have taken us to where we are today. Please don't think that I've done anything more than touch on a few of the high points in Roman history. There's so much that I've not even alluded to. If you want to learn more about the history of Rome and enjoy the podcast format, I recommend Mike Duncan's The History of Rome podcast. He does a great job on it, but it takes, I think, the better part of 200 episodes to do it. There's that much to it. Or you can read any of about 10,000 excellent books on the subject, such as Mary Beard's SPQR. This week's read that I'm recommending, though, is Juvenal's Satires. Juvenal was a Roman poet that was active in the 1st and early 2nd century AD. His satires does a very good job of exposing the seeming underside of Roman life during the empire. I spent too much time on Christianity, not just because it continues to be a major historical attractor in our time, but because it had such a transformative effect on Western history for 1,500 years. The history of the Middle Ages can't be understood without it. But here are a couple more takeaways from the history of the Roman Empire that we should keep in mind. The decline of the Roman character. 
As we've discussed, men like Marcus Atilius Regulus and Cicero typified the ideal Roman character during the Republic. Character was often discussed, and one's reputation for being a Roman of strong character was always on the mind during the early and middle part of the Republic. With the wealth that came from foreign conquests at the end of the Republic came a stunning decline in adhering to the moral code written about by Cicero. Not many years into the empire, Nero would not be the only one hosting extravagant sex-filled orgies. Patricians would spend stupendous amounts on lavish banquets, where people would gorge themselves, then purge themselves so they could do it all again. Caesar survived one assassination attempt because he had gotten up to go throw up. There are many reasons the Republic fell, and there is no end of analyses of why it happened. But any analysis that you read that fails to take the decline of Roman character into account is deficient. Reading Juvenal is a good way to understand how far Roman morals had declined during the empire. In the early days, the empire was flush with booty from recent military conquests, and Augustus had put the empire on a very firm administrative footing. In other words, it had plenty of money and was well run. Toward the end of the empire, not only had it been poorly run, mostly, but there was more money going out to the provinces than was coming in. Rome simply spent too much, way too much. It couldn't simply keep borrowing massive amounts of money, so what could it do? This is a huge problem America now faces, a subject we'll definitely return to. It was Nero who hit on the solution to the question that would run throughout the empire's tenure. How do you spend more money than you bring in? The answer was to debase the currency. When Nero put on the purple toga, the Roman denarius was 94% silver. After 200 years of debasement, the silver content was 0.02%. This, of course, brought on rampant inflation. The price of wheat would increase almost 200 times in the 200 years after Nero. Another takeaway is that the wealth gap between rich and poor ballooned out of sight. Some of the patricians by the end of the empire would have more money than the state itself. The wealth of many Roman plebeians, meanwhile, had not increased significantly from the plebeians during the early days of the Republic. The military costs of the empire were also enormous. The Roman super-rich didn't want to pay for it. They never do. The middle class ended up rioting when they were taxed too heavily. And in response, Rome ended up having the barbarians on the peripheries of the empire defend the empire. No surprise, that didn't work out well in the end. And finally, climate change. As climate change denialists love to point out, the Earth has always gone through periods of warming and cooling. These are natural. It's the unnaturalness of our current warming period that is of concern, but we'll get to that later. There was an extended period of drought in the 3rd century BC. This period coincided with the relentless barbarian invasions that Rome endured from the north. Some of the larger, quote, invasions didn't start out to be invasions at all. They were just tribes emigrating from the north because their crops had failed for too many years in a row and they couldn't feed their families. They just came into the empire to try to survive. Rome would deny their peaceful requests for land, fearing them as in-groups always fear out-groups. What were they to do? Starving people are desperate people. Rome ended up with huge military costs because there were so many barbarians coming into Roman territory. To stay in Germany where they had come from meant starvation so they took their chances fighting with Rome. Then, as has always happened, the Western Empire fell. The Eastern Empire would go on for another thousand years. 
but 476 AD is the date often given for the fall of the Roman Empire. In the end, it went out with more of a whimper than a bang. During this period of history, empires were lucky to last three or four hundred years. The Roman Republic was founded in 509 BC, and the empire lasted until 476 AD. Call it a thousand years. That was extraordinary. People are forever asking, what was the cause of Rome's decline and fall? I think the better question is, which I touched on in episode 10, and somewhat in this episode, is what did they do that was so right? I'll see you next time.